The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Genetic manipulation is, um, in a sense, a relatively new development. Um, in another sense, various forms of it and various experiments have been around um, for, for a while. Um, Montaigne, the French essayist of the Renaissance, um, ex- expressed his perplexity before the uh, huge diversity of forms and shapes and species all coming from a single seed. And um, uh, this uh, astonishment is something that uh, researchers and scientists um, expressed. And in the 19th century, it began to be studied in quite some detail. Um, The most famous student of course, was the uh, Czechoslovakian Gregor Mendel, Mendel, um, who um, published his essay on the hybridation of plants in 1865. And he began to see that if you crossed certain uh, plants or certain vegetables, he worked with peas and, and many other forms, um, you could predict what the uh, offspring would look like in the second and third generation with a statistical, a very strong statistical uh, probability, and you could especially predict what would be dominant and what would be recessive. And from that, you got to the idea that in hidden in the genetic material were uh, traits that would come out in a dominant way or in a recessive way. Um, since, um, since his time, um, this has been uh, studied in, in, in very, very intense form by many scientists. And in modern times, uh, we've come very close to uh, understanding the actual mechanism itself. Um, one of the great breakthroughs, as you know, in, in, in modern science was when Crick and Watson um, proposed the model of the double helix for um, the, uh, the chromosome arrangement and so on, and uh, established that human beings um, had, a, uh, had 46 chromosomes and, and that the genes um, could be determined not only by what they carried, but their place on this, on the helix. And from this comes the idea that perhaps it can be um, um, manipulated. Uh, And from the idea of of Mendel's manipulation through simple different kinds of crossings and hybridations, you get to the idea of genetic manipulation, which is a technique that um, permits the transfer of genetic material 
uh, from one species to another. And in order to affect a manipulation, um, you need to have the host cell um, carrying usually the Escherichia coli. Um, you need a fragment of DNA, which is the, um, the genetic material, desoxyribocarbonucleic acid, um, to introduce into that cell um, a fragment coming from whatever source. It could be animal, vegetable, bacterial, viral, and of course it can be human. Um, you need a vector. Uh, you need something that transports this uh, DNA fragment um, to the E. coli. And then you need what they call restriction enzymes, um, whose function is to sort of cut, uh, cut up the, the DNA into particular points. And uh, then you, you um, introduce these fragments um, into, into the host cell. And one expects from this manipulation um, or this engineering process that um, the, the bacteria incorporates into its proper uh, structure the, the DNA, the foreign DNA material. You, are, you then have a hybrid um, uh, DNA molecule. This uh, incorporation um, is um, a complex process. The reproduction of it can be very rapid. Um, bacteria divide um, every, is it every half hour or something like that. It depends on what, what they are. Um, and um, the oper this operation has become known as cloning. And there's lots of um, popular understanding and misunderstanding about what cloning is. Um, this uh, has a number of different applic applications, and the ethical considerations that are important for us, um, I think, depend on two things. One, the famous question we raised last time of, because you can do it, does that mean you should do it? And the other, if you can accept the technique itself, what possible applications are there, which ones are, you know, legitimate and which ones are not. Um, and with our, um, with the evolution of our, of our knowledge of, of basic or fundamental biotechnology, the uh, field of application uh, for genetic manipulation um, is going to be increasingly diverse. When I was in, in Europe, one of the members of our medical ethics committee was a professional uh, geneticist, and he worked on projects of genetic manipulation at the hospital of Lausanne in Switzerland. And his, his basic mission was um, connected with agriculture. And uh, he did amazing things to uh, take uh, diseased plants um, and, and occasionally animals and, uh, and redress them by um, the, um, the use of, of, of very complex uh, manipulations. 
Um, there are um, applications not only to prevent disease or cure disease, but to create species or create uh, uh, small variants that, that aren't usually at the level of species um, that are meant to be uh, improvements on the, uh, the ones that are given. And um, in medical applications, um, you can actually begin to create a number of new medicines. Um, the uh, rapid multiplication of bacteria permits one to produce uh, in, great, in big quantities um, a number of substances uh, which hitherto have been very difficult to obtain. And um, so there are, there are many, many um, possible applications. Um, the risks, of course, are uh, that uh, one can begin to play God with, with this um, stuff. Um, and the other kind of risk is that um, you can have um, growth that is undesirable. Uh, you can have, um, you can introduce um, cancerous viruses, and this has happened in, in some labs and so forth, and, and um, it, the growth becomes uncontrolled. And um, so the, the, it, it is an operation that, that has a number of risks to it. Um, when um, you're doing um, hybrid, when you're working on hybridation, um, you're dealing with huge areas of the unknown, and um, every now and then there's a there's a major surprise that comes in. Some it's, could be a, a introduction of a foreign DNA um, that uh, creates a toxin, and um, for reasons that nobody understands, and, and so on. Um, just the same, um, the technique has been developed uh, with some determination because of the, uh, the positive contributions that it can make um, in, in fighting against certain diseases and so on. The most um, uh, sensitive subject of all, of course, is human genetic manipulation. And so far, the science is fairly crude. Um, it's not as if we're, you know, you hear this talk about, well, we can create, you know, Einsteins and, and uh, well, that we're, we're way, very, very far from that. It may never have happened, as a matter of fact. Um, but is, is it ethically licit? Is it ethically legal and justifiable to begin to manipulate the human being? Um, let me mention and some of this is, is, is review, four points which one needs to consider before one can even make intelligent decisions. Um, first, uh, when you think, what is the human being? Ma-enosh, says Psalm uh, 8, verse 5. Um, and that question rejoins a whole host of other philosophical questions. The answer is, of course, that the human being is created by God and is image of God, uh, a creature at once dependent on God and given the responsibility of stewardship over the earth. My uh, friend uh, Dick Kyes 
uh, calls this trust and dominion, the combination of trust and dominion in, in a human being. And uh, they seem contradictory, but in fact uh, they are not. When the uh, centurion reflected on Jesus' authority over disease and so on, he said, I'm a man under authority, so I understand what it is to give out orders. And uh, it's not finally a contradiction at all. It's a, it's a wonderful harmony. But this means that we are not machines. We have bodies, but those bodies are not just mechanisms that sort of work by themselves. The bodies are part of God's image and um, must, must be considered as such. Second point, um, under the influence of the biological research that seems to be doing so much, um, one begins to talk about life in terms of nucleic acids and genetic codes and so on. What is life? Well, it does have a genetic material, and that's a totally legitimate way to look at it, but there's so much more involved from a biblical point of view. Um, life has a mystery to it. Life is created by God. Um, though it can be manipulated, um, and cloning has become possible and, and, and so on, um, the theologian wants to remind the scientist that at even the most minute level, even at the tiniest level, um, we are dealing with um, something that is set apart. I hesitate to use the word sacred. You've heard me hesitate to do that because you don't want to get into the idea that life is something magic, that it has some sort of a law. Uh, but um, the, the, the um, description of life in the Bible um, makes it something that has a very, very special status and something that is very close to what God is. God is life. Um, I've always been fascinated by the fact that in, in a lot of theology books talking about God, you don't have many reflections on that attribute of God. You talk about his justice, his goodness. Um, you don't often talk about his life. And yet, in the Bible, um, the life of God is a very key concept. Um, God is alive as opposed to the idols. Um, he's the living God and, and so on. And, and I think that tells us something about created life. Um, then um, the third uh, point would be that as the image of God, um, we are like him. And because we are like him, um, we are something like the earthly replicas of God. And as earthly replicas of God, um, that means that certain kinds of manipulations of our beings are legitimate because they enhance or preserve um, that part of being earthly images of God and replicas of God that, is, that, that are in a permissible way and in a way that, is, um, that brings honor to that creature. 
and then others do not. And there's a lot of reflection on the, in the Bible as to the relationship between our being, the image of God, and um, what we can and cannot do to ourselves. I mean, the classic reference would be, as Paul says, you know, don't go out with prostitutes because um, your body is joined to Christ. You belong to Christ. Uh, you've been bought with a price, is another kind of argument. And that implies certain things are legitimate to do with it, some things are not. And that sounds like an obvious truism, but um, because we are ontologically dependent on God as replicas of him, um, we're simply not free to do what we, what we want with our, with our bodies. And then the final point, the fourth point, um, is to remember the doctrine of the fall as well as the doctrine of creation. Um, Though created the image of God, and though um, originally noble and um, without flaw, we are now in quite a different kind of, of state. Um, and the, the, the fallen state that we're in subjects us not only to the guilt of sin, but to the pollution of sin. And part of the pollution of sin involves... Um, the pollution of, of judgment on the, on the body, um, sickness, uh, malady. And several kinds of malady are directly related to um, genetics. Um, there are lots of these, and you scientists know a lot more about them than I do. I've noted here um, certain kinds of anemias, um, I have noted um, enzymatic uh, sicknesses, um, trouble with me metabolism. Um, <coughs> and I've noted um, various kinds of um, fibrokistic maladies of the of the pancreas. Um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the statistics I have now these are maybe a couple years old because I did this a couple years ago. Um, mucoviscidose or um, fibrokistic uh, malady of the pancreas um, is, ve is very serious and at the present uh, leads in 80% of the cases to, uh, to fatality, to, to death. Um, it is statistically the most frequent kind of um, children's genetic um, illness. Uh, one case out of 2,000, at least two years ago, in, in newborns. And then um, other kinds of, of, um, of sicknesses, different types of anemia, um, and uh, homozygote subjects uh, uh, have uh, danger of, of um, various kinds of, of blood diseases which are genetic in origins. And there are many others. What's our responsibility to, to, towards all this? Well, let me tell you my basic approach. My basic approach would be to say that um, not only is there, is there nothing wrong with seeking genetic treatments of these diseases, but they're actually called, on, called for when it involves um, bringing a person back to health. Um, the... Uh, the place where I think we need to draw the line very, very firmly 
is when we begin to try to clone for specific human traits, qualities, um, not dealing with the treatment of disease, um, but when we begin to wish for strong children, we talked about this briefly last time, male children as opposed to female, we want them first and so on. Um, I think that's something that, though in the future we may be able to do somewhat, um, we want to stay away from. And the reason we want to stay away from it is because, first of all, we're denying the sovereignty of, of the Creator God to know how He wants to um, have the human race be produced in terms of its diversity. And diversity is a very important biblical concept for the human race. Paul, in reflecting on that in Acts 17, says that out of one he formed many, and he assigned them boundaries and places and so forth. Now that text has been used for racism, um, but if, if you read it carefully, it has nothing to do with racism. It has to do with God actually leading people into different cultures and leading them geographically, and I would, by implication, in their diversity as offspring, um, so that there is a... Um, inherent diversity to, to the human race. And the benefits of this, of course, are tremendous. Uh, we don't know all of them. Part of them is that diversity seems to glorify God, and maybe there's an imaging of God and the fact that he's a trinity in that diversity. But there are also benefits in the sense that um, if we were all the same, and this is pretty stupid, obviously, we, don't, we would recognize that problem right away, but if we were all the same, um, we would fall into all kinds of problems. Um, I believe one of the difficulties represented in the Tower of Babel episode is that the, the human beings there wanted to unite their name and be the same <coughs> so that they could have more power. Of course, you can control something more easily when it's the same. Um, how many parents try to make kids into exactly <coughs> their type because they want to control them, you know. Um, when, uh, when we put uh, Debbie in college this year, we went to church <coughs> at the university chapel. There's a really excellent chaplain up there, and he, he gave a sermon about, you know, how to let go of your kids. And, and, um, and he said, look, two things <coughs> to, to you parents. One, he said, uh, please do not try to play out your fantasies through your kid. I mean, we all know this intellectually, but what parent doesn't do that, you know? Um, Little League, whatever it is, you, you know, usually it's fantasies of things that you didn't do very well when you were a kid, so your kid's going to do it, you know. <coughs> and, uh, you know, he, says, he sort of said, in effect, let them have their own fantasy. And then he said, second point, please leave. <laughs> Go home, let them, let them be. And, um, you know, that's a real, uh, that's a very basic uh, point about bringing up children, but it's, it's also a philosophical point about the human race, is that diversity is good. Um, and um, that's why the Tower of Babel was such a, uh, an evil thing, is that they were trying to bring uniformity. And one of the problems in modern technology is the danger, the constant danger of making everything uniform. Um, there are advantages to some streamlining, of course, and that is that you get things done faster. But the disadvantages are, not only does it take away from diversity, but with a fallen world, um, it's greater opportunity for sin to run faster. So if, if everyone began to try to make uh, children the same, 
look the same, have the same intelligence, the same kind of traits and so on, um, it would actually be very dangerous um, for the human race. Um, and, of course, the other problem with it is that we are not only usurping the role of the Creator, uh, but um, we are anticipating in a way that we're not capable of doing so um, the, the, uh, the final world of heaven, which will, where we will be perfect, and we will not have genetic defects and so on. Um, but uh, we have to wait, and genetics cannot artificially bring the final state into being, despite the wishes and hopes of many people. Salvador Dali um, put in his will that he was to be frozen when he, as soon as he died, and uh, then when they found a cure for whatever he died of, they were to wake him up and have him live forever. Well, this is um, totally utopian, and, and it's just, you know, we know that that can't happen. In the meantime, there are, I think, some very legitimate, um, though modest, uh, goals for genetics. And uh, I think in the area of agriculture, um, there's a lot of hope there. Um, in the area of making medicines, I mentioned this, um, and in the area of fighting certain um, defects, I think there's a lot to be done there. Um, and Christians should be careful not to engage in um, paranoia or fear of conspiracy, as if all the people out there in genetics are bad people trying to do Frankenstein sort of stuff. It's just simply not true. There are dangers and there are problems. Um, get into some of the more specific dangers when we do in vitro fertilization, but you know there are uh, countries need to wrestle with the ethics of this and lay down very strict legislation. Um, Churches need to be aware of it so that they can uh, encourage parishioners to have the right mentality about things, and, and ethicists need to wrestle with the scientific as well as the theological issues involved. But I think um, my, my basic position is that in those areas where it's legitimate, and you have to wrestle with that some, sometimes, uh, not only is it permitted, but it's, it's, it's mandated, um, because you know just as it's perfectly uh, legitimate to have medicine and uh, as a calling, we've talked about this a great deal, It's this is a legitimate extension despite the fears of a, of a brave new world. Um, on the other hand, there are uh, very, very important limits um, and those limits involve denial of the Creator's role and denial of the role of sin as well as a false anticipation of the final state. Any questions, comments? Uh, yeah. That's a good reflection. Not only um, the elimination, which would be a very radical solution, but even preju prejudice, you know. And I think our society wrestles with that a lot. We're, um, we're now moving into a, a place where we're becoming very sensitive to um, in people with impediments, impairments. Um, and um, we, uh, we're not even supposed to t say handicapped anymore because that uh, gives the impression that there are people who are less than human. Um, the language, I think, ha is a minor issue, though it has its place. I think the reality is much more important, um, that when a person is uh, limited or impaired or handicapped, um, that person in no sense 
has diminished the imageness of God. And I've taken issue with Bauma on this point. I think in their functional approach, they tend to um, open the door to um, a, a lowering of, of esteem for certain people who, who simply have impairments. Who doesn't, after all, have an impairment? There isn't a single human being on Earth that doesn't have uh, something wrong with them. Um, and, uh, of course, death is the, uh, is the final uh, witness to that. At the same time, uh, the goal of medicine is, indeed, to bring people to health. And health must not be confused with um, sculpting a, a perfect person or having some ideal for a race. Health, uh, as we've said, has to do with um, a whole range of, 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 of things to do with living. And uh, here they have, I think they have done a pretty good job of, of, of saying what, what we're looking for. Um, as you image God in health, uh, you're seeking to be um, to, to to function well in, in various uh, um, in various areas of life, and um, the difficulty of the Nazi, you know, approach was that it it defined health in very very narrow ways, and of course highly erroneous ways, um, but. If we had a, if we have a, a well-rounded view of health, then we ought to be able to uh, to handle that problem that you talk about. Um, also, one other thing to add is that impaired people, severely handicapped people, and so on, um, though we could have wished that they didn't have this, um, contribute a lot to a society um, which is in a fallen world. Um, if they weren't here, would we be compassionate, sensitive, you know, to, to people with, with problems of various sorts? Um, it's like uh, the prison minister who goes to the prison and he says, you know, we're all prisoners. You happen to be behind bars. I happen to be free. But we're all prisoners because we're all we're all criminals. So so the um, person who's apparently quite healthy should look at a handicapped person and say, well, you know, I have a handicap too. Um, it's not as visible, it's not as, it doesn't impair me as much um, physically, but it's, it's there. And then it should help be compassionate um, to, to, to other people and to older people, um, to other handicapped people, to uh, people who are less privileged, um, and, and so on. Um, and I think, it, in a curious way, uh, far from removing the image of God, it teaches us things about the image of God that you might not have known otherwise. I know, you know, any of you who have worked with handicapped children, they know the tragedy, but they also know the sheer joy of working with some of these little ones who, um, who have a, a, a natural and naive um, kind of uh, spontaneity um, because they're handicapped. They don't have to worry about fronts and so forth. And so they're delightfully human. And um, uh, you discover something about what the image of God is by, by working with people like that. I was at a conference in Switzerland where um, we were debating this 
issue, and my colleague who's, who works in Lausanne was one of the speakers, and uh, the Christian audience there was very, very nervous about gen genetic manipulation because they just, their only image of it was, um, was Frankenstein, you know. And he had the hardest time convincing them that we do this all the time, you know, when we eat a good diet, you know, we are, we're not manipulating genetically, but we're manipulating, we're, um, and they, their argument was, it's not natural, not, and that's what that article arc argues against there in, the, in your huge book. The Catholic position tends to be, well, if it's not natural, don't do it. The difficulty is, what is natural? What does that mean? You know, you get dressed in the morning, is that natural? Well, you know, and we eat, we try to eat good food. Um, and um, so defining what's natural is not so easy, especially when you get into uh, altering various states or behavior, or, or, you know. Sure enough, it's, it's not natural, but that doesn't make it wrong. All right, let's, um, let's move into uh, artificial insemination, and uh, I'll begin, and then we'll, we'll have our break, and then uh, we'll go into some of this in more detail. Um, artificial insemination is the act or action by which one um, deposits the male sperm into the um, the genital parts of the woman at the time of ovulation, and the uh, art, the fact that the artificial nature of it um, is in the fact that you do this in another way besides uh, sexual intercourse. Um, in vitro fertilization is a variant of it. Um, where um, you transfer um, uh, the, uh, the sperm to the ovum outside of the womb. And um, yet another variation is embryo transfer. These, are, these all have to do with artificial, artificially assisted techniques of procreation. And these, of course, imply some manipulation of gametes or of the embryo, um, which distinguishes it from other treatments to have children, such as hormone treatments and, or um, surgical treatments and so on. Depending on whether you're talking about um, introducing a third party or not, you can talk about artificial insemination by a donor or artificial insemination by the spouse. Um, artificial insemination um, is indicated medically in several cases. Now, we ha I'm not going to by this say that I agree that, that you should always do it because when this comes up, this is the answer, but this is when it tends to be applied. Um, because the, um, the sperm is too weak in um, spermatozoids and is, needs to be more concentrated to, to become um, uh, fecund. 
or because the act of sexual relations is difficult or impossible. Um, that can be a psychological phenomenon. Um, it can be physical. Um, or, again, because of, of, of grave sickness, the treatment of which may be sterility, and um, the answer to that may be something which uh, permits uh, reproduction outside of the normal process. The sperm may be deposited as such um, with the aid of a probe and a tube into the woman's womb. You can also um, take the sperm and suspend the spermatozoids, concentrate them, and even select um, what appears to be healthy ones, um, and place that into the fallopian tube. The favorable moment for insemination is, has to do with, with ovulation, um, and uh, that can be determined on a number of grounds. I think most of us know what that is if you've ever had to struggle with things like birth control. Um, the, uh, one of the difficulties ethically, and we'll, I'll try to give some answers to this, um, but is that the usual method for gathering the sperm is masturbation. And masturbation uh, is, is usually done in circumstances far removed from sexual intercourse. It doesn't have to be, so I'm going to answer that in a minute, but that, that can give people, Christians, real problems. Um, in any case, um, there, is, there can be a, a, a long period of, of, of freezing the sperm, and then this is uh, placed into a, a, a kind of um, a stocking uh, place where you, you stock the sperm at 196 degrees centigrade, minus 196 degrees centigrade. And several countries have begun to develop sperm banks where these uh, stocking uh, units are, are preserved, and it can there's it, it can it can be preserved as far as we know for a number of years. The success rate of classic artificial insemination is something between fifty and seventy six percent in a year. That is through twelve cycles. Um, interestingly enough, that's roughly the success rate for the normal way of, uh, through sexual relations. Um, when failure occurs, there can be a number of reasons. Um, first of all, the technique is not yet very precise. There are a lot of crude elements to it. Um, not as easy as you might think to uh, isolate the very day and moment of, of ovulation. Um, also, the quantity and quality of the spermatozoid material um, plays a role. And then, of course, the, what, what you might call the degree of fertility of the woman um, 
is is a determining factor, and that can depend on a whole lot of things, and I'll go into them in a little bit. Um, what are the various juridical realities that we're dealing with here? Um, well, different countries have different rules, have different legislation. France uh, has a rather well-structured network uh, of institutions, carefully regulated on the whole by the government, to, um, to control the, the, the various procedures. Um, from 1973, um, a national system is in, was in place to oversee the gathering, the preparation, and the distribution of, of the sperm. And they have these um, centers um, called the Centers for Study and Conservation of Human Sperm. And those centers, of course, people call them sperm banks. Um, in, in France, no commercial aspect is allowed by law. Um, they will receive sperm from donors, but they are not remunerated in any way. I suppose, you know, maybe travel expenses paid or something, but there's no, there's no um, fee, there's no reward, financial reward for it. Um, in America, that's not the case. In America, we have the beginnings of some independent institutions, sperm banks, where you can uh, get a lot of money for uh, depositing um, your seed and uh, having it preserved and so on. And on the other hand, a woman can pay a lot of money to obtain uh, the, the seed. And in France, that's, and in Switzerland, that's not allowed. Um, at the present, um, in many countries in Europe, only the married couple can practice artificial insemination um, through, through these means. Um, in Switzerland, centers of artificial insemination belong to an organization that was created in 1977, which exists to coordinate and to create standards for all the programs. And this the, is controlled by a central committee which has on it uh, gynecologists, biologists, uh, genetics, genetic scientists, psychologists, and jurists. Interestingly enough, no minister or theologian is required. Um, though, in fact, uh, they are often consulted. Um, there is a kind of, um, yeah. In most countries, yeah, it depends on the country. Do they No, not, it depends on the country, right. Uh, no, not yet, not in, not in the countries I've studied. Now, this may occur in, maybe in, in Sweden or some of the more, more liberal ones, and I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe somebody else does. But um, as far as I know, that, ha that has not happened. I know there's people push for it a lot, but it, as far as I know, it hasn't happened. Um, it has happened in, in a number of countries for adoption. 
but not artificial insemination. Um, there's a kind of fuzziness in the regulation, the juridical reg regulation of artificial insemination, uh, and you can understand why. Uh, the rules are new, the rule book is new, because the game is new. Um, so far, the most common uh, civil legislation is, is based on the common law idea um, of, the, of property, curiously enough. Um, and the elaboration of a modern civil legislation in this area is, in fact, rather delicate. And property does seem at least a good beginning. Um, in a number of very famous cases, um, in Europe as well as the United States, um, the very complex character of what's involved has been um, put into evidence. Um, who are the children's parents? Um, or, to put it another way, um, the child um, has his or her own identity, um, but what identity is that when legal and biological parents are different. Um, other kinds of areas difficult to regulate are the fact that the donation is involved. Should it be um, a pure gift or should it be for remuneration? And who should be able to give? Should it be restricted to people who are of a certain background, a certain health state, non-criminals, uh, and what's that going to lead to? Um, similarly, should the donor be anonymous? Another legal question. Um, and then the question you raise, what about insemination for a single woman or a lesbian couple and, and, and so on? Um, certain um, conclusions are practically unanimous all over the world. Um, so, for example, eugenics is a unanimously uh, forbidden practice. Um, others depend on the country, as I've said. For the time being, uh, the main questions revolve around two basic categories. Um, the first um, is the conditions of artificial insemination. And the second is the status of the child. Um, artificial insemination presupposes the uh, ownership or the, of, a, of sperm. In that case, um, the laws have to regulate what rights the owner has and what rights he no longer has once the gift has been made. Um, the law also needs to determine whether that is a free gift or a um, remunerated gift, and also whether it's a necessary therapeutic measure to take. Again, so far, because of resistance to eugenics, most countries have been very reluctant to um, have people do it you know, because they feel like doing it. It's got to be indicated um, medically and therapeutically.
Um, and there needs to be regulation, and is in some cases, on mutual consent. And that leads to problems of contracts. Um, and we've seen that in the United States in a couple of very famous cases. Um, can the contract ever be broken, and was it, how, how is it formed in the first place, and so on? Who owns the child? Um, medical personnel have a very important role because it is usually up to them to decide the, um, the necessity, the opportunity, um, and the conformity of the practice, the, the, the technical practice with, with ethics. Um, but ethicists and theologians, I think, are very important as well because they need to supply ethical standards to the technicians, which the technicians by themselves aren't going to be able to come up with. What is the status of the child? Um, the, uh, the problem most often, I guess exclusively, I would say, comes up when the donor is a third-party person. Um, in France, again, the law establishes what they call the truth criterion to determine whose child it is. Um, and that is, you can, you can uh, only claim that the child is yours when the sperm is yours and the egg is yours. Um, so far, you cannot uh, just claim because you've, you've gone through this or that you have been the surrogate, that it really does belong to you, though very few people would contest it. We'll get into that in a minute. Don't, don't stop me here. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big uh, hornet's nest. Um, what happens when um, you don't want the child anymore? That's another set of, of laws. Um, now, before I get into what I think should be some sane ethical conclusions about this, let me say one word about the problem of infertility. Um, because I've said that the only ways that most countries practice it today so far is when it's indicated therapeutically. But that is a question for us as Christians in the first place. Is that enough? Just because um, a couple cannot have children, does that justify going through this? Um, biblically, um, we see the real dilemma um, of, of infertility in a number of ways. First of all, you know, God said to the human, our, our forefathers, before the fall, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fall did not change that mandate. It made it, made it difficult, it made it problematic, but it didn't alter the mandate. Um, on a certain reading of, of Genesis 3, the fall made the actual procreation and childbearing difficult. Now, I say on a certain reading because this has been contested now by certain schools that see in that um, a, a very different problem, a theological problem of man-woman relationship. But when, um, in the traditional view of the curse on the woman, it, when it says that uh, her pain in childbearing will be multiplied, um, though it may include difficulty with a man-woman relationship, the primary thing involved is indeed um, the bringing forth of children, which can have to do with um, 
conception, um, pregnancy, and, and so on. And there's no implication whatsoever that it's only the woman's problem. It's simply that the curse is addressed in a very general way uh, to each um, member of, of, the, of the first couple according to the specific uh, focus and calling of, of that person. Uh, the, to the man it is taught in terms of work and to the woman in terms of childbearing. It has no, no implication, as far as my reading is concerned, that the man can't have some problems in childbearing and that, uh, because it's often the man who's, who's the infertile one or that the woman should have nothing to say about work. It's simply a, a focus because of, of the economy of the text. In any case, going along with that mandate to have children is the desire to have children. And the desire to have children is a fundamental human um, uh, motive. It's a fundamental uh, uh, human trait to desire children. It's a drive, you might say, in uh, Maslow terms. Um, biologically and humanly, um, that desire may be rendered problematic as well, but it is not abrogated in any way. In fact, it can become obsessive. It can become uh, exaggerated. Infertility is a tragedy, is a difficulty for the couple because um, when procreation is impaired, the identity of the couple is somehow challenged. Psychological studies show that um, from a very young age, a child wants to be like mom and dad. And the way they want to be like mom and dad, among others, is to become parents. Um, this is why kids play with dolls. Uh, they want, and this is why they uh, they have um, you know baby carriages and push their their babies around. They want to be like mom and dad, um, and this drive um, is a very is manifest in a very early way, um, and the impediment of that is a very serious uh, challenge of the identity of the person and of the couple. Now, in the Old Testament. The impossibility of having children um, not only has a psychological character, but also a theological character. And this makes it difficult for us, I think, as we read the Bible, to get simple conclusions about it. Because we are, we are no longer in the Old Testament. Um, and so we need to know what parts of the Old Testament are transferable in a direct way, what parts have to be reformed through Christ's radical, redemptive acts and uh, through the season of revelation that we're in. And take, for example, the very famous case of Hannah um, reported in, in 1 Samuel. Um, you remember that Hannah, uh, unlike the uh, her her well, what do you call the other wife? Your, not your sister-in-law, your wife-in-law, whatever she would be, um, was not able to have children, even though her husband loved her more than the other one. And this was a, a tremendous element of suffering for her. Why was it an element of suffering? Well, I think without a question, there is the human psychological uh, problem that we talked about. 
But in her case, it's very clear from the context and from her prayer of thanksgiving when she was finally delivered of Samuel um, that she saw the inability to have a child as related to Israel's role, to Israel's mission to produce the Messiah.